My daughter, Emma, loves music. When I say loves, I mean she eats, sleeps, and breathes music. She loves instruments, playing instruments. She loves songs and songwriters. Uh, She loves artists, of course, live shows, the production of music, all of it. Me, on the other hand, I, I don't know much about music. I don't know how to play an instrument. I, I don't know how to make a record. I certainly don't know how to develop an artist or to write a great song. I don't know how to participate even in the production of, of music. I, I don't know much about music. I don't know how to sing. In fact, when I'm singing up here next to Lloyd, he, he has to move down a chair just to concentrate. There's a lot of things that I don't know much about. I don't know much about science, or technology, or engineering, or agriculture, or commodities. I know a ton about banking and finance. I don't know much about a lot of things. It's true for all of us. In fact, let me ask you a question. If, if all the knowledge in the world filled up this room, just, just imagine that for a second. Everything there is to be known about everything was within these four walls, this floor, and this roof. How much of that would you say you know? Fraction? Maybe that little bitty, tiny snowflake that was falling this morning? What about of Jesus? If I ask you about Jesus, and I said, uh, of all there is to know about Jesus Christ, the God became man. How much of that would you say that you know? Maybe not much. But there is something this morning that, that I know for sure. That I know with absolute certainty. I know it to be true of me and I know it with 100% confidence to be true of you. You and I have only just begun to grasp the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. I don't care if you've been following Christ for 50 years, if you've been teaching the Bible for 20 years, or if you just trusted Christ this week. We are just beginning to scratch the surface of the splendor and the wonder and the majesty and the dominion and the authority and the power and the beauty and the glory and the grace and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Just beginning to scratch. Just starting. And I know that with certainty because if we did, there would be nothing on this earth that would ever take our eyes off Him. No burden, no struggle. We would be free fully free, liberated from all that burdens and so easily entangles us. Uh, Of course, that day when all things will be made right, that day is coming. It is coming. But on this day, I want you to know this. We can see more of Jesus. We can know Him more fully. In fact, Jesus wants us to know Him more fully. That's what this study in Revelation is all about. It's what this chapter, these four verses that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 1, it's what these verses are all about. Jesus wants us to know Him. See, Revelation, the book of Revelation, it's not just about what will happen in the end. It's about Jesus Christ and all He will do in the end. 
Revelation, the act of revealing. It's a revelation to John, but it reveals, it unveils Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done that we might grasp more the fullness of his glory and his power and his authority and his majesty. So take out your Bible with me, if you would, and open it to to the book of Revelation chapter 1. We are in the second week of our 12-week study of the first four chapters of the book of Revelation. This series is entitled Seven Letters to Seven Churches. It's written by John, as, as I mentioned, and, and uh, it's written by John uh, to the church in Asia. And, and the church in Asia at this time was, was living under the oppression of the Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian was not a good man. Domitian hated Christians. He persecuted Christians. They suffered under his rule, his heavy hand. The Domitian required people to call him God. This is this man. And Domitian was especially aggressive toward the church in Asia, although he ruled most of the Middle East at this time. He was especially aggressive in Asia Minor because that's where most of the Christians live. You see, these Christians in the church, they were marginalized, they were discouraged, they were likely fearful. And what is it in the midst of that context that is of such great encouragement to them from this letter? Paul was divinely instructed to send this letter as a word of encouragement to the Asian church. And what is it that is of such encouragement to them? Well, it is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is remarkable. No scripture that is quite like this. So follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father, the eternal Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That, we think, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Seven being the number of perfection or completion, wholeness, fullness. There's a cross-reference there. It might be in your margin to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where it talks about the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit, the complete manifestation of the Spirit. So best we know, this is from the Father and the Holy Spirit, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, a reference to His glory. Behold, He is coming, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
So we have here a message to the church in Asia, Asia written by John from the Trinity and all about Jesus Christ. Now go back with me to, to verse 5. We see three phrases here that describe who Jesus is. Three phrases about Jesus, his character, and his nature. Here's the first. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word witness, we hear it with a religious connotation. It's a word that's said in church. That's a word that was said a lot in the church that I was growing up in, you you might think. Wednesday night prayer service. People were expected to give a witness or to testify to some account. But, you know, this word witness is, is actually, I kind of want to redeem it for a moment here. It's, it's actually much more than that. And it actually is very common in everyday life. Much more common than we tend to think. You know, might be a witness to a car accident, right? And tell the officer what you saw. You might be a witness or you might have witnessed uh, the birth of a baby. You saw with your own eyes, you were an eyewitness to the miracle that is new life. Uh, Yesterday morning, I was at a basketball game. I witnessed a victory. We dominated. (laughs) Ten to six, we dominated. (laughs) I was there, right? Maybe you, you were a witness to a crime or... You've been a witness in a court of law. You see, this is more the context for what John is saying here. Jesus Christ, when he went before Pontius Pilate on the day of his crucifixion, he stood before this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, looked at him and he asked him, so you are a king? And Jesus said, it is as you say, I came to bear witness to the truth. And of course, that's what he did, right? He, he bore witness to the 12. And he bore witness to the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders in the temple. He bore witness to the woman at the well and to the Good Samaritan and, and, and to the tax collector up in the tree. And he bore witness to the rich young ruler. He bore witness to all those that chose to follow him, and all those that did not. Jesus bore witness in his time on earth, and he bore witness to the truth of God. He bore witness to the holiness of God, and to the sinfulness of man, and to the way of salvation, and to the hope that is only found in him. In fact, we could say that Jesus is the perfect witness to God, to the truth of God, for he is God. God who became man and came to earth, the faithful witness all the way to the cross. First phrase there is faithful witness. Now look at the second, just following in verse 5. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it would not be good news at all were it not for his resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, for he is the first fruits of all those who have gone asleep. 
He leads us in resurrection. Three days after his crucifixion and death, he was raised and it marked the beginning of the end for death, not just his death, but ours. Were it not for that, death would be the end. would have no hope. There would be no future. He is the firstborn of the dead, meaning that we will follow him in resurrection. Our bodies will be raised like his, glorified, restored, and made new. We will be raised with him, and we will spend eternity with him. That's true about us, and that's true about loved ones who have gone before us who have placed their trust in Christ. They too will be raised, glorified, immortal bodies, spiritual bodies, eternal bodies, made to be with him to spend eternity together. And those that come after us, they they too will be raised. Our children, our grandchildren, those that come in the generations that will follow us, all that will come, those who trust in Christ, they too will be raised with Him. You see, our access to heaven, to life beyond the grave, is granted by the power of the resurrection. Death could not hold Jesus Christ. Death can't hold God. And so it loses its claim on us. He is the firstborn of the dead and we will follow. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. And three here, continuing in verse five, Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. In Philippians chapter two, Paul says that God the Father highly exalted Jesus. And he gave him the name above all names so that every knee would bow before him. The ruler, the king above all kings. So that means that Vladimir Putin will bow the knee. And Kim Jong-un will bow the knee. Barack Obama will bow the knee. Caesar Augustus, Alexander the Great, Queen Elizabeth I, Napoleon Bonaparte, they will all bow the knee. Gandhi will bow the knee. And Stalin and Hitler and Churchill and Roosevelt and Jefferson and Washington and the Kardashians (laughs) will all bow the knee to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. Isaiah chapter 40 says, all the nations of the earth will be as nothing before the one true King, the one who is just and good, the one who is sovereign and in control, the one who grants us life fulfilled. He meets our desires, our longings, our passions. That King who is awesome and mighty, and glorious, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler over all the heavens and the earth, that's our King. It's our King. Paul goes on. It it gets better than this. How can it get better than that? Well, Paul continues from who Jesus is to what he has done. And, And in a nutshell, he says this, and we'll look at it, but he says this. He says, Jesus Christ has answered our greatest problem. That's what he's about to say. 
Jesus Christ answers our greatest problem. So forget North Korea for a minute. And forget ISIS. And forget Middle East. And forget the world economy and the profound political and social instability that we find in our world today. We have a much bigger problem than those things. The whole world has a much bigger problem. See, we have rebelled against God. In our rebellion against God, our sin must be paid for. Our God is a just God. Our rebellion, our sin, there is a price to that sin. Romans says, for the wages of sin is death physical death, but also spiritual death. For the wages of sin, the penalty for sin that must be paid is death, eternal death, spiritual death, which means eternal separation from the king, from the one that we just said so much about. The justice of God has to be satisfied and there's no way that any of us can do it, can satisfy it, so we will spend Eternity separated from God because of our sin, our rebellion against Him. But Jesus Christ came to this earth and He lived a perfect life, a perfectly sinless life, and He went to the cross willingly and He died a gruesome death with the weight of our problem hanging on His shoulders. And the end of verse 5 says, it was in that moment that he released us from our sin. He solved our greatest problem, verse 5 says, by his blood. By his blood. What a powerful phrase. By the blood, literally, that spilled down his face because of the crown of thorns that was pushed deep into his skull. So it would stay there from the blood that gushed from his back as the flesh was ripped from the bones. Literally, that blood. From the blood that poured from his hands and his feet. Jesus Christ bled dry for you and me. For there was no other way, and when he bled for our sins... Our sin problem was erased for all eternity. See, when sin has been paid, when it's been paid, there is nothing left to pay. And it, men and women, has been paid. Jesus Christ, he answers our greatest problem. He addresses it with his own blood. And he answers our greatest questions. It's the meaning of life. Why am I here What was I made for? He answers those questions in verse 6. Take a look at it with me. Here it is. And He, Jesus, has made us to be a kingdom, a kingdom of priests to His God and Father. You have a purpose. And your purpose is to be a part of and to participate in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's your purpose. Why am I here? 
What's the meaning of life? Why do I exist? What am I made for? You are, Jesus says it with his own words, made to be a kingdom. A kingdom, of course, that is ruled by a good and benevolent king. A a kingdom where peace and harmony reign. A A kingdom that you love and enjoy. A kingdom very much like the original kingdom. In the Garden of Eden, at the very beginning, of Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us about Adam and Eve who walked with God in perfect union. They walked with God in the cool of the day and God provided their surroundings, the garden, all the trees and all the vegetation to meet all of their physical needs. This is Adam and Eve who served as vice regents to the king. They served on his behalf. They, they maintained, they were given governance over the garden and everything in it. In fact, they were empowered. They had dominion and rule over all the animals. Everything that was on the face of the earth was under the vice regents, Adam and Eve, to the king. All the beasts of the field, all the birds of the sky, all the fish of the sea, everything in the earth was under their dominion, a kingdom like that kingdom. A kingdom that is perfect that is restored, that is eternal, that is spiritual. In fact, we are called priests in that kingdom. I want to help you here with the word priest as well. Priest, don't don't think our our normal context in the sense that you will be like Bill, priest. Some religious leader, Michael or Lloyd or priest in the Catholic Church. No, that's not the context here. You won't spend eternity as a priest in that way. The context here is actually this. It actually refers to the intimacy, the immediate access that we now have through Christ to the presence of God. You you see, a priest in the Old Testament, he did not have access to the presence of God. The presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple, and the priest could not go in there, for if he went in there, he would not come out of there. All of that flips with the coming of Jesus Christ. And now we serve as priests, access to the presence of God, and sent, commissioned to serve him as priests, as vice regents in his kingdom. That's what it means, priest, that we might have unlimited access and that we might serve doing uniquely what we were made to do and being completely satisfied in it. That's the kingdom. And that kingdom, we are a kingdom of priests right now, already. A commission to serve on behalf of the king, to help bring the good news that is the gospel of Jesus Christ from God to a broken world that we would be faithful witnesses to reveal to the unveiled Jesus Christ, that we would demonstrate that in our words and our lives and our actions to those who don't know him, that his glory might be made full. And when that is, he will come again for us. That kingdom is now and that kingdom is not yet, right? It won't be fully consummated until the king returns, which is why those deeper questions come. It's why those deep longings are in us. They aren't quite fully satisfied in the here and now. They will be, they aren't now. 
the place in our soul that says, gosh, is this all there is? The answer is no. This is not all there is. And the best evidence for for, for more may actually be that deep longing in your chest. That actually might be the best evidence that there is more to come. C.S. Lewis once said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world will satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And you were. You were made for a future kingdom, the kingdom of God. And of course, verse 6 ends with this beautiful, worshipful response to the king. Here's what John writes, of course, to him who who loves and saves and made a kingdom a purpose for us. He says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus, he, he addresses our greatest problem, greatest need. He answers our greatest questions, gives us a purpose. And Jesus is our greatest hope. Why? Because he is coming again. Look at verse 7. That's where John writes it. Here's what the Trinity says to to us. Behold, he, Jesus, he is coming with the clouds. And every single eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn to him. Simply meaning every knee will bow to him on this day of his coming, this day of of judgment. He is coming. Every eye will see. Those who pierced him will see. The tribes among all the earth will see him when he comes. So it is to be. Amen. Now, amen is not just how we conclude a prayer. Amen actually has a meaning. So some of you know this. Amen means let it be or so be it. Which is fascinating here because John repeats himself right here at the end of this verse. Did you notice that? Here's what he actually says. Jesus is coming, every eye, every tribe will bow the knee, so it is to be, so be it. That's what he says. When something's repeated in the text, we pay attention, right? It's repeated here. So it is to be, so be it. He doubles up on his amen. Why? Why does he do that? Well, here's why. Because this is the greatest news this side of the cross. This is it. The one who came, thank God he came, is coming again. That is our greatest hope. I I want you just for a moment uh, to put yourself in the shoes of the the church in Asia, the, the early church. I want you to imagine what it must have been like for them to gather on this particular day, and for someone to walk in, likely an elder, and open up a letter, scroll, open up a letter from John. Hey, this is, this is written by John. It was sent to us by John. But listen, it's from the Trinity. And, and here's what it says. I, I'm just, I'm going to read through here, but I, I want you to pay attention to verse 7. What is it that is of such great encouragement to the church in Asia? It's verse 7. He is coming again. This church was oppressed, right? Persecuted, right? Their hope was not found in their circumstances, certainly. Their hope was not found in some opportunity that they were excited about right around the corner. Their hope was not found in some 
semblance of security and stability. They didn't have any of that. No, their hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ and his imminent return. What about John? Where was John when he wrote this? Well, John was on the island of Patmos, exiled on the island of Patmos, we think, with a bunch of other criminals under Roman oppression, all there with a bunch of thieves, murderers on the island of Patmos, exiled there. Where does John find his hope? People around him? Of course not. He he finds his hope in Jesus Christ who is with him and who is coming again. What about us? What about us as a people? Oh, church, where do we find our hope? How, How is it that we live free and full when life doesn't work? In the midst of whatever challenge you're facing right now. Whatever that might be, very serious health concern or even a minor health concern you're just worried about, financial pressure or constraints, maybe it's some relationship that you're concerned about, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's kids, aging parents, whatever it is right now for you, how is it that we live free in that? Well, here's how. We set our gaze upon the person of Jesus Christ. We set our eyes upon the unveiled Jesus Christ who bears witness to the truth, who saves us from our greatest problem. We lift our eyes from all that's right here and we set them on Jesus Christ, the one who saved us for a purpose for a kingdom that is now and is to come, commissioned by him to serve in that kingdom. We will not be sitting around for all of eternity singing worship songs. We won't. No, we won't. A very specific purpose for those who follow him. And he is, look at verse 8, the one who calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. I am the beginning and the end and all that is in between. I am, Jesus says, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is our greatest hope. John, at the end of the book of Revelation, he says this, And I read, he says, And when I heard and saw these things about Jesus, it was all I could do but to fall down on my face and worship. So that's what we will do today. I'm going to have the band come, and they're going to lead us. In a couple of minutes, we'll, we'll stand to sing. But before we do, I want you to think about something. And I want you to bring it to your worship. I want you to consider the thing, at least one thing, that stands in the way, in your life right now, that stands in the way of you seeing Jesus Christ more fully. 
Would you just name it in your own mind before the Lord? What is that thing, that challenge, that faith struggle, that opposition, that relationship, whatever it might be that stands in the way, that stirs your emotions, that competes with your perspective, that competes for your heart attitude? What what is it for you? I, I want you to take a moment just to consider that before the Lord. What is it that stands in the way of helping you to see Jesus, who He is, and what He's done? Take a minute.